Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. All right, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like we've been on a bit of a winning streak lately. I feel really strongly about the last couple of months worth of episodes that we've put out. So many interesting people with really excellent stories. And this week the streak is kept alive by the great John Parr. Now John Parr, as everyone remembers probably from this song right here, had that number one track in 1985, Man in Motion from the St. Elmo's Fire soundtrack. This song hit number one. Now this was his prim primarily his biggest hit. He had one other medium-sized hit just before this with Naughty Naughty. Remember that one? So good. I love John's music. I called it Stallone music on here. You've heard it before. Robert Tepper, Glenn Burtnick, that kind of muscular yet emotive rock music from the late 80s that would have made sense in a Sylvester Stallone movie. That's kind of how I feel about John's music. Well, his story is a lot like other people that we've had on here. For whatever reason, despite his success, he got screwed in the end by his record company for no good reason. And he tells a story in here that's kind of unbelievable, to be honest, that because they weren't prepared for his, his success or counting on it or investing in it, when it came, they decided to sort of shut it down rather than keep it going. So he's writing follow-up hits and follow-up songs and albums, and they aren't being promoted because of politics. This happens time and time again. I will never understand this process. So he does a lot of soundtrack work. He does fashion. He does jingles. He's all, doing all these other things, which are cool. But at that time, if you ask me, he probably should have just been focused on putting out the hits, but he was not getting the support that he needed. It's very strange. He is a very good man. I had been trying to make this happen for two years. He was one of the first people I ever reached out to. And finally, his publicist, Richard, thank you, Richard, but every few months I'm pinging Richard. Hey, how about now? How about now? Finally, we made it happen. He was such a lovely man. I love John. I love his music. I'm glad you guys get to hear this conversation. He's a lovely man with a very, very interesting story. He called me from his home just outside of the Sherwood Forest in England. You have one uh, very specific uh, benchmark in my life anyway, because your first album was the first album I ever bought on iTunes. So wow. iTunes first, yeah, I think that's kind of an interesting little bit of trivia. When I, iTunes first came out, I, uh, I sort of rejected it for a while because I still collect CDs. I didn't think I needed iTunes. But, as, yes. you know, you, you finally adopt to technology and whatnot. And I remember the very, that very first night being on iTunes trying to, like, poke around and see what was in there. And I thought, you mean I can get – I could buy something like, let's say, John Parr's first album right now? And I, and I type it in, and there it is for, like, only five ninety nine or six ninety nine or something. Wow. I said, well, let's do this, and so I buy the out, and so that was you were my gateway into you know the iTunes experience. But anyway, a little bit of how great, how great, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't normally like to go way back into the beginning of people's histories because that stuff's easy easy to find out there. But I am curious, what happened for you first? Was the first sort of big break working with Meatloaf, or was it your own record deal? How did it go from you being a member of various bands and sort of gigging around England to actually you know becoming something taking that next step i um against my better judgment i was offered a a, a small publishing contract with a company called carlin or carbert in america 
It's a guy called Freddie Beanstock, and he was an old Jewish guy that had made a I've great deal of money. Yeah, he, he had a lot of the Elvis catalog, and he made a lot of money signing the catalogs of uh, composers, you know, Beethoven and Mozart, people like that, and, and getting, getting this available catalog and doing deals with the families. And, and basically, uh, I was offered this deal, met this guy in London, very nice guy, Kip Trevor, and he was really, really supportive. But the deal was real bad. It was five hundred pounds, so it's about seven hundred dollars. And the lawyer cost four hundred dollars and the train cost a hundred dollars. So I made two hundred dollars for this deal. But the beauty was that they would give me a hundred and fifty dollars a track for me to record demos. So I had my own little studio that I'd built. So this was great. I could pay the musicians to come in and um, make these tracks and started writing songs for for Carlin to pitch. And it really started quickly. And Meatloaf was one of the very first ones that came to the table. And almost simultaneously, John Wolfe, who has been with The Who for 20 years, he'd started as Keith Moon's driver. And he, he was like the general manager of their businesses. And they were splitting up and he was looking for something new. And he'd gone into the publishers and said, is there anything I should be listening to? And they played my cassette to him. And I met him just as the meatloaf thing was happening. Met him, he was drunk. He was, it was the Who Farewell Party <laughs> down in Shepperton Film Studios in England. Mm-hmm. And he was, he's a crazy guy. He was as crazy as they were. Uh, but I was catching a plane on my first trip ever to America. Went over, met up with uh, Meatloaf and the band, went straight into the studio with them, working on his new album. Meantime, John Wolfe is in New York trying to clinch a record deal with some of the demos I'd been doing. So it all kind of took off in tandem. And the Meatloaf album came out just a little bit earlier than my first record. And of course, like you say, the first record jumped out and kind of exploded, yeah. well, Naughty Naughty particularly exploded, you know. I put my hand on your stocking I was moving nice and slow Get my fingers do the walking And it ain't far to go Don't tell me Naughty guy, because that was the first song I heard from you, and it built from there. And th- and we should say the Meatloaf album, I believe, was Blind Before I Stop, right? Was that the yes. one that you yes, were it was, yeah. involved with the first one? Okay. I like to talk about and kind of focus on some of the the emotional aspects of these transitions in artist life, because you, up to that point, had been, I mean, even since you were a teenager, I believe, you had been sort of a a musician trying to make it happen, playing around England. Maybe you felt like you had already made it, 
But that had to feel like you had sort of jumped into a new level of, I don't know about stardom, but professionalism when the, the meatloaf and the who thing starts to happen. Do you recognize that in the moment? Are you starting to think, wow, this is beginning to take off? And not to mention, I, I believe you might be in your early 30s by that point. So you're not like yeah, a, you it's know, a, a fresh little kid. Yeah, not a kid. No, it's a pinch yeah. yourself moment. I mean, I think it's good advice for kids out there, you know, kind of disregarding this kind of get famous quick for the sake of being famous that we see so much on TV now and the kind of reality things. But my life was, was kind of always jumping for things that were out of my reach. I was never interested in fame or the money, but I was fascinated by getting the goosebumps from artists, all different, you know, the black soul artists, blues artists, but also the rock artists, even the cabaret artists, the great ones, and they, they just thrill me. So from being a little kid, I wanted to try and electrify people. I wanted to kind of, wherever possible, really try and have a physical effect. So my whole life had been going towards this and practicing really hard. And, and in the years that I wasn't famous on the big uh, scene, I was kind of famous on the club scene. So I knew that I could go on stage against a very kind of hard audience and usually win them over, mainly with mm. stagecraft. So the, the the big change, like you say, came with Meatloaf and, and uh, with my own record. I was very confident. I, wasn't, I was not aware of being conceited or blasé or whatever, but I was very aware of being just ready to take the reins, if you like, yeah. and yeah. It was harder with Meatloaf because obviously I had a little eight-track tape studio in England and suddenly I'm in this million-dollar studio with all these, some of the E Street band then were with Meatloaf oh, and, yeah. and they'd, they'd be asking me for advice. They'd say, what do you think, John, you know, and I'd, <laughs> I'd catch myself, but then I'd say, very quickly, you're just guys uh-huh. in a room trying to make the best, you know? Sure. And if, I'm, I'm imagining if you act like the the novice or the little green guy in a situation like that. Maybe some people from the E Street Band, then they might lose respect, or they're not going to be asking you what you think for very long if you don't provide valuable answers. So there's probably a little bit of pressure to sort of meet the moment, you know, like I've been waiting for this, I better act accordingly or else they aren't going to happen anymore. Well, I'll give you two examples, though, which kind of sum me up as well. I mean, I'm a lot older now, but I mean, for instance, when I was touring with Journey a few years ago, I loved uh, I loved working with Neil Sean and really got friendly with with Adam, his his crew guy. He's been Adam has been with Slash for 19 years, and I'd say to to Adam, I said, you know, I really think I should try to improve my guitar sound, and he thought I was kidding, where I was just being open. Do you know Do you know what I mean? Sure. And yeah. I, I yeah. do that a lot where where I'm just. I've, I've forgotten what the word is, but I'm just, I'm earnest. I'm, I'm, yeah. I, I just think, yeah. wow, I, I, yeah. that could be better. That you know, and I'm never yeah. afraid to, 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 you know, whatever platform people may put me on. Sometimes I'm, I'm never afraid to kind of just come down to, uh, uh, not down, but but just kind of sure. say, do you think I could do this better? Could you help me? You know. Yeah, that's great. That's so great. So the first album comes out, John Parr. Naughty Naughty is a is a pretty big hit. It's a huge hit on rock radio, decent sized hit on pop radio. I don't remember if there was another 
single off of that album or if there was one that it really made a lot of waves did you feel like you were the that al- first album was given the fair shake that it deserved or did a record label eventually pull the plug on it or like we're done promoting this thing let's move on to the next what was the history of that particular album it was heartbreaking it was heartbreaking really? i mean oh. yeah I, um the story of me is i know a lot about music but i'm not I sometimes don't know who who's behind it or who these people are. So when I was with Atlantic and I was signed by Ahmed Erdogan, I had no idea of the gravitas of that. And I became a, a buddy of Ahmed's, you know. And again, he was just a guy that I liked. I had no idea. It's only in later life that I, I realize, wow, who I'm with. And yeah. It's been the story of my life, that. So I'm on this record label and... I realized very quickly that Atlantic, if you're on Atlantic, if you don't rock the boat, you're with them for life, really. You can be. Really? And their view is they put a record out, and if it's a hit, it's a hit. But they they don't put more than a couple of singles out. Whereas for me, I thought if I make an album, I want it to be knee-deep in singles. I want it to be full of quality. Yeah. I don't want you to be speeding through looking for the best tracks. And so right. John Par 1, for me, was like, you know, I thought there were five big hit records oh, on that. absolutely. And I, I, it broke my heart that, that they didn't see it, that Atlantic wanted to put the first single out. It was a song called Magical, which I'd written with Meatloaf. him to put Naughty Naughty out and they, they agreed but of course not realizing what record companies do it's not their idea anymore so they're not pushing as hard so they they would try it territory by territory and I remember they did a little experiment in in uh, Kansas and did a little radio campaign and we sold six copies of Naughty Naughty but on the strength of that they then put money into another state and that's why Naughty Naughty wasn't the blockbuster that it was on rock radio it, it it would have been number one it was on a chart for six yeah. months but it was a hit and number one in each state over six months if you see what i mean you know it didn't get the <laughs> the wow. record points out so so frustrating and yeah, we yeah. would just we cry i mean we would cry because 
and then it was it was in the days of uh, double bonusing. If you were a record exec, mm. you'd go to a radio station, and if you got a P1 station, a primary station, you'd get a double bonus. For the re- well, Naughty Naughty had none of that, so we didn't oh. even have any kind of really big push. And it was Christmas, which is the worst time to be releasing a record you know and we yeah. were in and out bubbling under 99 104 whatever yeah. but it eventually yeah. just hung on but it was such a and they released they released other things but it was always half-hearted if you see what i mean you know right right sounds like it oh that's got to be rough you've just come to america you've just broken through you've had a hit and yet you're probably still feeling like you know life hasn't changed too much there should be more to it than this and my record label's not really getting behind me. It was right? tough, you know, and I mean, I was out on the, I could tell you another story, an anecdotal story. I, yeah. My wife and I, I, I took five years off. I played, in, played music from being, for money from being 12, right up to 30 years old. And the truck blew up and there was no money left. And my dad said to me, who'd been my manager for a lot of the time, maybe it's time to get a proper job. And uh, my wife said, you know what, you know, I'm going to pay the bills. You just start writing songs. And so that was about 1980. And so I started writing songs. She paid the bills. I remember uh, Toto coming out, Toto 4, Uh and with uh Africa on it and Hold the Line. And I remember sitting on my lounge carpet and just, it just killed me. I just broke up. I just thought everything I'm dreaming of doing, this band are doing it better than I can Uh ever do it. And, you know, six months later, I was on the road with them. They were watching this from me from the side of the stage, punching the air. They played on my records. Just shows you how life can change, you that's know. That's amazing. And, and, Good for you. You know, you know, man. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so after John Parr, though, are you actively working on a second follow-up album? Has Atlantic at least given you that much? Or because before Running the Endless Mile comes out, there's, of course, Animal's Fire in the middle there. So what's the sequence of events? You've, you've said that the first album should have done better and it didn't. And it, it's not that it's a flop, but it just sort of fades away. Yeah. But suddenly, how does David Foster find you? And, or do you find him? Because I know you wrote that song primarily because of a uh, wheelchair Olympian or something like that. I, I can't remember the full story. Well, this is an alleged story, but David Foster told me this, so I don't know what the oh, logistics of okay. this are. But he, he and Paul McCartney were writing a song. And the song, let's just say, was inspired by Naughty Naughty. Oh, and David really? Foster's wife comes, comes in, she's been shopping, and she's heard Naughty Naughty on the radio. And she comes in, and David Foster and Paul are doing this new song and she says to them boy there's a guy on the radio that's ripping your song so that's what that david foster told me that story he okay. called me told me that story and he said look i'd love to i'd love to write uh, a song with you i'm working on this new movie i've never done a movie before it's my first chance of doing a soundtrack do you want to come and help me write an original song for it i'm doing 10 original songs you know and i said sure yeah. So I went over, it was a very small studio in Los Angeles called The Lighthouse, and I went in, you know, I'd just come off the road with, uh, with Toto, they told me a little bit about David, obviously they knew him well, oh, yeah. and, but I, again, <laughs> I had no idea of the magnitude of him, I had no, no idea, he was just this guy that, 
you know, made good music, and I knew he'd done right. Earth, Wind, and Fire. And so I walk in. The studio is a mess. It's full of tapes and there's stuff everywhere. And he's just jaded. And he says, "Great to meet you, John." He said, "But look, uh, I'm just exhausted." He said, "I'm doing my first soundtrack album, and I'm doing ten original artist songs, which is a, as well. It was a massive feat." Uh-huh. He said, "Please, will you sing this song? I haven't got time to write anything." So he plays me this track, and it's just not very good. And I said, boy, man, I think we could do better. You see, if I'd have known who he was, maybe I wouldn't have said it. But I just said, man, you know, I think we could do better. And he went, yeah, I'd love to, John, but, you know, I'm exhausted. And I begged him. And we went in the control room. And there was just like a a Lindrum machine. I don't know how technical you are, but the Lindrum was the very first digital drum machine. But it was the first one of Rogers. It wasn't for sale. It was all wires hanging out of it. Because it sounded great. And there was just a piano. And so yeah. we go in, and we're, he's going to give me 10 minutes to write a song. So we start writing. We write a killer song. And I go, wow, this is great. And he goes, we can do better. So we write another song, Whoa. another 20 minutes. Really? And he, wow. I go, wow, this is great. He goes, we can do better. So we write, send almost fire real quick. And I knew it straight away. That's he goes, yeah, amazing. this is it. This, this is it. This is, this is Friday. We have to have the song out in the can and it's going to be dubbed into the picture on Monday so this is Friday oh. so uh, I go back to the hotel and oh I tell you he, I'm really struggling so I've got all the music but I'm really struggling to come up with the lyrics because the subject matter of that movie just doesn't hit with me because I'm a kid who left school at 15 I've been broke all my life and worrying about a film about rich kids worrying what they're going to do with their lives you know and with silver spoons it just didn't connect so I went back and and so I said and Joel Schumacher the director came down the studio and he told me and it still didn't do it for me and David showed me this cassette video cassette he said, this guy's from Vancouver, David's hometown. He said, came in the studio last week. So it's nothing to do with the, nothing to do with the movie, he said, but it's really moving. And it was one of these little 10-minute segments from a local news team in Vancouver. And it was Rick Hansen. And Rick's this, you know, he looks like a young Kennedy sitting in a wheelchair saying, I broke my back two years ago. I was able-bodied. And I was thumbing a lift with my friend and, we jumped in a truck and a mile down the road it crashed and it severed my spine and my buddy walked away without a scratch. And he said, but I ain't going to let it get me down. I'm going to get in my chair and wheel it around the world to raise money. And yeah. the end of the video is him wheeling out of a shopping mall in uh, in Vancouver. Nobody was, like three, three men and a dog waving him goodbye. Right. And it, on the back of this truck it says, Rick Hansen, Man in Motion, World Tour. And of course, the hairs on the back of my neck went up. And I, I went back to the hotel. And I remember it was on hotel, you know, notepaper with the, just the pencil in the room. And I thought, I'm going to write this song about what this guy's going to achieve. He's going to do it. I'm going to write it entirely about him. But I'm going to make every line ambiguous. So when I say all I need is this pair of wheels, they're going to think it's Demi Moore's Jeep, when really it's Rick Hansen's wheelchair. And when, a, when once in his life, yeah, when once in his life a man has his time is when Emilio Estevez gets the girl. It is really when Rick wheels back into Vancouver half 25,000 miles later. So, but I insisted that the song was St. Elmo's Fire Brackets, Man in Motion. 
Yeah. And David says, you're crazy, man. They'll never swallow it. Well, they did, just because it was so fast. No you know, the, the, the dubbing to the movie. Yeah. So it was just an accident. But I knew it, man. I knew, I knew it, John, at the time. I knew I, I, it was a gift. I, I, I take yeah. no responsibility for it. It was just gifted yeah. to us, you know? That is amazing. And, you know, that's actually a common story that comes up on here a lot when I talk to people, especially because I'll talk to a lot of people who are like one-hit wonders or two or three hits or whatever. Yeah. Those big hits, they just come out of nowhere, and they're done in like 20 minutes. I talked to Don McLean yeah. recently about American Pie, and he said the same thing. Yeah. That song's eight minutes well, long, and yet it just plops out of thin air. Exactly. Brain. You know what I mean? They're gifts from God or whatever power you want to call it, but they right. are gifts. Exactly. I, I sometimes think, though, the danger is when you start to believe it's you and it's only you, mm. you're in trouble. You know. Good point, yeah. Well, because then you probably think you could do it anywhere at any time, and that's yeah. That doesn't happen. That kind of inspiration is very sporadic. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So when you write the song, you're did they um I've always wondered because no one really knows what Saint Almost Fire even is, or they didn't back in nineteen eighty five. People yeah. look it up now. Did you have to yeah. were you sort of like trying to find ways to kind of plug the name of the movie in there somewhere just to tie it back to the film? Or did you have a clear concept of what even Saint Almost Fire was? To me, to me, I knew St. Elmo's Fire was a freak of nature. I knew it was oh, when okay. phosphorus glows around. And so to me, always in my mind from the first minute was Rick Hansen wheeling up a mountain. And, oh. in, his, and in his vision is St. Elmo's Fire burning in the sky. And he's oh, wheeling that towards sense. that. That's my, yeah. That was my vision. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. So that song, now, going back, I think I mentioned this earlier, were you working on a second album in tandem with David Foster, or had you just come up, I think you said you just came off the road from the first album, maybe you hadn't even begun work yet, and this this single was sort of slotted in the middle. Is that how it worked? Yeah, yeah, and it, okay. it killed okay. the album, but worse than that, Atlantic hated it. They hated Salmon. Hated Fire. Man in Motion? Yeah, they hated it. They hated what it did to me. Uh, they saw me, Ahmed saw me, used to say, you, you're going to be our next Robert Plant, you're going to be our next rocker. And St. Almost Fire, although kind of summed everything I am up, yeah. was, was, was not what they wanted. I'd done a tremendous amount of groundwork. Uh, when I first signed with Atlantic, they'd never ever done a promotion tour with an artist unless they had a record out. Well, I did a promotion tour before I had a record out. I went out and I met all the radio stations and one stops and all those places, the warehouses, met all the staff that were going to ship my record. And uh, I said, you know, maybe I've just been signed by Atlantic and, uh, you know, I hope to meet you if my record's a success. So that was, so I'd done all that. And then when Naughty Naughty was out, I'd go back, see all these people. And it was like they were part of it. You know, they were, uh -huh. you know, we were this team. When yeah. St. Elmo's came out, I'd land in, in a place to do, I was touring with Tina Turner then, I'd go to a town, and there'd be no record exec to meet me, to take me around the radio stations or anything. Yeah. There'd be no promotion arrangement at all, so I'd just go to a town and do the show with Tina, or talk about the movie or whatever. There'd be none of that thanking people, and because you know, it's like it's impossible to organize that yourself. You need yeah. to have the... the, the re so that did yeah. me a lot of damage because it looked like I'd got too big for my boots when 
you know, it was the reverse. You know, I was just very, very grateful, and uh, and uh, couldn't believe my luck. Yeah, they can't just sit back and be glad they have a number one song. And think, no. see, this is a, another common story that comes up around on this on this podcast because my thinking is that okay, if you're a record label and you just made a bucket of money off of John Parr, then all we need to do is keep this train moving. We know now that we yeah. can make we have an asset. We can make money and have be successful with John Parr. So let's enable John Parr to do what he wants to do, and let's put the resources behind him to make sure he's successful. And yet they don't do yeah. that. And it's for whatever yeah. reason. Their feelings are hurt. You were more successful than they wanted. Less, Whatever it may be, that doesn't make sense. No, it was... It was it was just, and you know, I mean, it would drive me crazy. And uh, I did a couple of silly things too. I remember putting on a dressing room door, uh, Atlantic new promotion team, Burke and Hare, you know, the, the grave robbers. <laughs> and some people came and saw that. So that didn't, but I was so pissed, you know, and it just, oh, man. it just, uh, it just broke that my, because no as well, I had such a great relationship with the people at Atlantic as well. And nobody came out and said to me, we don't like this. We don't want you to do this. It was just yeah. by nature of what followed. I mean, when I tell you what followed, it's unbelievable, you know. Oh, man. And yet it hits number one without their help. Yeah. That's crazy. All over the world, you know I mean? Crazy. Yeah. yeah. That is crazy. It seems like after that, I know Running the Endless Mile eventually comes out, and you become sort of the movie soundtrack guy for a while. There's yeah. American Anthem. There's Three Men and a Baby. Is 
Was that, did you, was that the plan or did so many people come to you saying, Hey, we want, this guy just had a huge hit. Let's get him to do ours too. Did that sidetrack you at all from maybe what you had envisioned for your own career or were you okay with, Hey, I'll write more uh, soundtrack songs. I'm good at this. What was your thinking in that? I I learned very quickly by nature that Atlantic weren't going to promote me. I'll give you an example. Uh, there was a clothing company called Shams de Baron. It was the very beginning of uh, sports leisure wear. And they were kind of ahead of their time. And uh, they were looking for an artist to be the face of Shams de Baron. And uh, they were going to match dollar for dollar the radio promotion of any artist that, they, that did it. They'd make a quarter of a million dollar video. Uh, they'd put that video in every shop in Malin, America. It was a six-month poster campaign on the back of mm. every... Uh, bus in six major cities for six months you know it was a huge mm-hmm. thing wow. and atlantic pitched all these artists and uh, they came round the back door and said you know they told us you didn't want to do it but we want you so we signed to do that so i had all this huge promotion had a record called uh, look grammar They, they made a very expensive video. That was the song that Atlantic signed me on. So, I mean, it shows you that oh, they loved the record, but they yeah. signed it on that song and uh, they didn't promote it. They, so we had this huge campaign and it just was like that. And it was, this, yeah. I, I'd hate to say Tale of Woe, but you know, Schwarzenegger was the biggest movie star in the world. I write yeah. the title track of this movie and they won't release the single. Oh. <laughs> 
Oh. I did Three Men and a Baby, one of the biggest movies of that decade, and they wouldn't release the single. You know, so it was, yeah. you can imagine. So I, I thought, well, I've just got no, I've got to stay in this line of work because at least yeah. my name is staying out. So I did about 12 movies. But it hurt me, you know, it hurt me as a recording artist because it looked like, even though, you know, I had a lot of integrity, all those songs fit the movie. They are about the movie and, you, uh-huh. know, I, you know, they're not, I'll just, I'll just drop this line in that's the name of the movie or whatever. Right, right. But, um, yeah, I agree. You know. <clears throat> yeah, they're all. I'll tell you a funny story. Oh, yeah, please. Tell you a funny story. The Running Man was uh, written with Hal Faltermeyer. You know, did Top Gun, and uh, so Hal was the hottest thing in the world. He'd just done Top Gun, and what was that other gigantic movie? Beverly Hills Cop. It was uh, Beverly Hills Cop, yeah. Yeah, so right in the middle of that, we've got the Schwarzenegger movie, and he says, hey, do you fancy writing this song? So I go to Germany, and uh, we record a song called The Running Man. And the lyric was, would you bet your life on a running man? Roll the dice on a one-life stand. So it really fitted the movie. Recorded it. Everybody loved it. Film company came back and said, we don't want you to call it Running Man. It's very common with film companies. They've lived with the title of their movie so long, they get tired of the magic of it. Whereas really, it was a magical title for their, for their movie. Right, so I had to go right. back in the studio and rewrite it and call it Restless Heart. okay but it's not would you bet sure. your life on a running man you know right so um that kind of stuff is always frustrating oh, you know yeah. but the funny story is that if you've seen that movie it's sponsored by adidas and when we did uh-huh. all the promotion shoot nobody noticed i was wearing a white nike tracksuit so we did all the promotion <laughs> shots in germany and a week later the film company came back crazy you've got to go back man and wear an adidas tracksuit right <laughs> so just just aside. Oh, that's classic. I love stories like that. It's so good. So yeah, I mean, after Cinema's Fire, it sort of feels like your your uh, career become it becomes sort of uh, scattered all over the place. There's this fashion scattered. thing. There's the rock. Yeah, there's the rock opera. You start working with Marilyn yeah. Martin. 
none of these things are yeah. bad, of course, but they they sort of are stifling I what I would imagine is some real momentum. You've just had a hit, number one hit. Like I said, let's get back out there. Two hearts from uh, American Anthem. Another movie uh, soundtrack yeah. theme. Let's let's promote this thing. But instead, you're kind of doing a lot of little other things. Yes, and I'm guilty as well. I mean, the guilty part mm. of me, and I think my manager, is that in those days in the '80s, it was ten grand a week for a studio. Mm. Mm. That was a residential studio, so you'd go in there it was ten Got grand it. a week, and wow. you can imagine huge. So I yeah. thought, what I need to do because I want to be creative is plow all the money back into video uh, equipment and, and recording studio. So I started building recording studio. So when I should have been on the road, I was building this recording studio. So I'm oh, guilty okay. of kind of taking my after. So I'd like make the movies, be building the studio, and it would be 18 months had gone by. And then yeah. I'd release another album, you know. And so uh. the loss of momentum is equally, because stage is really where well, probably my biggest strength, you know. And, it, and uh, mm. I, I just ne neglected it, you know. And there's another Meatloaf album in there. I gotta say, I love the song Rock and Roll Park. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a great track. And that's in there somewhere, too. So it just seems like you're going in a hundred different directions. And uh, you're right. there should be this streamlined process to keep the John Parr train moving. So anyway, are you starting to get, 
because near the end of the 80s, you know, we don't hear, there's Man with a Vision, which eventually comes out, yeah. I think around 92. like wow this is great my I, i'm working in music i'm a professional musician i'm making good money because i had a number one hit everything's going to be fine what what are you thinking um, at the moment by then i realized you know i mean for a while i was the guy you called if you wanted a, a sound you know a, a theme song for a movie yeah that only lasts for a while because when you work on movies there's usually a blackboard in the room and there's a, li a hit list of all the people that the movie company want to approach for music. And these are chart people, you know, so it would be Cool in the yeah. Gang or it would be whoever, Prince, whatever. Well, of course, I'm not on that list anymore by the 90s. Mm. So yeah. it's drying up. It's, regardless of what you can deliver, it's nothing yeah. to do with that. You're no longer a hot name. Yeah. And I just felt that I was making music for my friends and family to hear. There was no internet mm. then. There was literally yeah. very limited radio uh, for me. Couldn't afford yeah. to be on, on the pop radio. So I was just fading away. And during that time, I got embroiled in a very, very heavy court case, almost simultaneously. Oh. Really? And that finished me. It took 18 years for me to oh. win that case. So oh. for 18 years, when you, when you sign a, a, any contract... There's a little box, and it says, are you involved in litigation? If you tick that box, man, you can kiss that contract goodbye. So oh. for 18 years, I had to tick that box. I had a little deal with a company in Switzerland that weren't bothered, but it was just a Swiss label. And so yeah. I couldn't work uh, as a recording artist till 2010, which was, you know, I'm suddenly I'm 20 years out of the game Wait. when I was already fading, you know. So yeah. my, my career didn't kick... So I just gave it, I stopped, you know, and uh, yeah. took 10 years out. And the only beauty of it was that, you know, we, we started a family at that time. And sure. uh, the blessing was I never missed a day out of my child's lives. That's Whereas true. had I been continued success, I would have, yeah. you know, and so many of my contemporaries are onto their umpteenth wife and they don't know their yeah. kids. And I'm, yeah. I'm blessed, you know, we've been together 35 years and oh, my kids are my amazing. best friends, you know. So that that's great. my kind of success, you know. Good. That is amazing. Good for you. Are you, I mean, are you at liberty to, you don't have to give me, all, I don't even want all the details of the court case, but can you say when it was at the root of it? 
It was taking eight money, years. money, yeah, oh, just okay. money. People you trust, okay. and it's like I think every artist has the story. I'm sure you've heard it many times. Once that spotlight hits you, your life isn't your own, you know. And and uh, yeah. mine was, you know, mine was really compared to some of the big artists was, you know, the, you know, the shirt tails of major success. But even then, you know, to be 50 interviews a day, traveling yeah. 400 miles to the next gig and whatever. So you, you're just trusting everybody to take care of business. And they sure do, but for themselves. You don't usually find out until five years later that, you know, right. somebody's um, been uh, not looking right. after you. So now, I, just, um, I just went after the, you know, the people and it, yeah. took, it, it was a long, long bitter. I won wow. and I, I, I didn't get the money back, but I got my... Yeah. copyrights back and all that wow what a what a huge waste of time i mean there's a guy yeah, as talented as you with such great music and we don't get to hear it because of this other problem for 18 years that is so disheartening it was a long time to me it was a long time. You. goodness um yeah. now i'm yeah. guessing so we we try to kind of sensitively cover some of the money side of music business here yeah i'm assuming because yeah. man in motion was so successful that's not only is that continuing to sort of pay your bills today, but did it keep you afloat during those 18 years? Sometimes it did. Well, no, it was frozen. All my income was frozen oh, for 18 really? years. So what did you do? Yeah, did I had no income for it. Did you get another job? Uh, well, my wife was still working. Oh, she did. So okay. she ducked and dived. And, uh, you know, I would do little... I'd, I'd be bobbing and weaving, you know. And, uh, yeah. you know, I... I Sometime I'd do a bit of manual labor. My friend had a wood shop, and sometimes oh, I'd go in there, be a French polisher or whatever. And that'd be tough. Yeah. You'd be French polishing, and St. Elmo's Fire would come on the radio. <laughs> oh, oh, oh <laughs> <man>. <laughs> Those are the days. But, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, I wasn't, you know, I felt empowered by it. I felt, yeah. you know, this is what a guy, this is what a man does, you know, what a woman does. Yeah. You know, you go out and you, uh, you know, I had a family then, and uh, I had to make. I had to. I had to practice what I preached. It's no good singing, yeah. be a man in motion, and you know, and go out there and take life by the scruff of the neck. And you know, Rick Hansen wheeled 50 miles a day in a wheelchair with torn shoulder muscles. You know, and yeah. I'm thinking, man, yeah. if I can't go put sand sand wood for a day, I I don't know. I, so I did stuff like that. I played in wine bars, would sit in the corner and in disguise almost and play oh. stuff. And wow. <laughs> oh. So you weren't even allowed to go on a tour. You couldn't have played in, you know, you couldn't have put in, no. put in, put on shows. Well, it wasn't that. I could have done it, but you see, when you're in litigation, they won't risk you because you, yeah, you could, they could get in, implicated. That yeah. was the problem. Nobody wants to be implicated. Oh, oh man, that is rough. Oh my gosh. Well, so every finally it's resolved around when? 2010? Is that what you said? 2010. And, okay. um, yeah. So. Uh, by then, then everything's changed, hasn't it? Oh yeah, oh yeah. The whole music scene's like, changed. Totally, totally. But I'm guessing part of this deal meant you. It sounded like getting the rights back to your songs, correct? Yeah. Okay, yes. so now you're probably doing just fine because I mean, and I don't mean that to sound insensitive. I mean everything's probably better now because Man in Motion gets used on commercials all the time. Yes, and exactly. Play on the radio yeah. and. So now you finally get to reap sort of the windfall from that success from earlier, I'm guessing, correct? Yes, absolutely. They're, they're absolutely okay. true. And, um, you know, and, and uh, but ironically, 
ironically, you know, it's funny. The thing is, when I was in when I was first in America in 1984, I don't know how how old you are, John, but in in I'm 1984, 24. well, yeah, so you, yeah. well, in in I 1984, well, we we had a we had a war in England in in the late mm-hmm. 70s, early 80s. It's called the Falklands War, and a yeah, lot right. of people died and uh, was just fighting for an island that Argentina had invaded. And it was our last hurrah as a nation, if you like. And we went out there, and a lot of people died. And I've always been passionate about the sacrifice of of what people are prepared to lay on the line. My dad was in the military. and uh, So when I went to America in 1984, everything was happening for me, but I was very, very aware that, your military in 84, they were told not to wear their uniforms in the street. People mm. would spit on them, you know. And mm. I remember being in one town and it said, no dogs on the grass or Navy. And I just mm. couldn't believe it because I, we'd what? come out and uh, cause it was just just lunacy. And, and uh, yeah. I thought, you know, I, I really want to do some music about this. I want to, like yeah. protest songs, if you like, and whatever. Yeah. Anyway, my career took off and things happened. And by the time... I, I wanted to do what I did. It was kind of all over for me, and I couldn't do it. So when 2010 came, I came back to America, and really, uh, in that 2010, 2012 period, I did it. What money I had, I spent on my own dollar. Did uh, 35,000 miles by road with my buddy, no just playing benefits, and made a record called The Mission, and it was all. Yep. Uh, proceeds going to the uh, USO and USA Cares because I cared about it so much and that was kind of my yeah. my bit if you like and it wasn't yeah. wildly successful it was very successful with the people that counted the the brothers, okay. the sisters, the mothers, fathers sure. of service personnel and it was a shame because in the way that St. Almost Fire is about disability but you wouldn't know these songs on the mission were rock and roll records that happened to have a military yeah. background, so you wouldn't yeah, obviously know. So they could be on the radio and you wouldn't think, wow, yeah. this is a protest song, it's just a rock song. From the day I enlisted to the day I check out, got something deep inside me, but I just can't get out. I got something I believe in, a country that I love, I swear I will defend her. With the strength of God above Over and over I do what I can Shoulder to shoulder I stand I'm a military man Yes I am I was standing in the bar room in trouble walking the door Minding my own business But I'd seen it kind before Where the biggest one came over Started chewing on my ear Talking down my country Then he spit in my beer I felt the power Surge through this right hand He and his devils Were damned By a military man Don't mess with a military man
So it's frustrating, really, but I really was so pleased I did. It cost me a lot of money and two years of my life. I mean, I was away from home at Christmas and everything, playing at Seymour Johnson Air Base, but I wouldn't have missed it for anything. Um, Yeah. But America changed then because, yeah, America was, you know, support our troops, you know, Wounded Warrior Project, flags flying everywhere. So I came back to an America that was very different to the one I'd known 20 years earlier. Okay. Because this is what I, this was uh, one of the main things I wanted to talk to you about, because it seems very clear that the last six or seven years of your life, as you mentioned, has been devoted to this topic of soldiers. And so much of them appear to be, so much of it appears to be even from an American perspective. And I just wondered where that, where does that fascination with the soldiers of a country that you're not even from come from? But it sounds, I mean, you tell the story, I, I get it. It's unfortunate well, that it wasn't more monetarily yeah. successful, but it probably was very um, satisfying to what you wanted to do artistically. Well, the program to help the troops in England was very one-dimensional at that time, and it's mm-hmm. called Help for Heroes. And okay. I told them what I wanted to do, and they said, sure, give us you know, so many thousand dollars for the logo. And I went, but I'm giving you a $100,000 record and my own money. I don't want to pay for your logo. I'm going to give you all the money from the record. I'm not going to take a dime. Right. So I just couldn't get any. They wouldn't wouldn't let me help them, if you like. Wow. And I told them that it was going to be a two-spear thing. It was going to be a mess. I came to America, and the USO were all up for it and said, sure, you know. So that was really – so I did the three. I did Military Families, USA Cares, and the USO. So that was my American-based thing. Ironically, wow. now, you, uh, Health Heroes welcome me with open arms, and I do loads of stuff for them now. Oh, good, but it's good. kind of in reverse. It's such a pity it wasn't five years earlier. Yeah. You know. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, I wondered where that f- fascination or fixation with the soldier culture especially came from, but that makes sense. It, it was well, the injustice, days. John. It, yeah, it was the injustice yeah. that at that time That's of, it. you know, it's hard to understand, but the 80s, actually, you can imagine me coming out of a war where we've lost, oh, sure. you know, thousands of men and then coming sure. where they're spitting on soldiers in America. That was it, really. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, oh, I forgot to mention somewhere. <laughs> sorry to go this other completely different direction. Did you? Go on. I read yeah, somewhere. Yeah. Did, did you write the, the jingle Gillette, The Best a Man Can Get? Did you buy? Did you? Yeah, write it's a that? long story. Yeah, with, with Jake Holmes. Jake Holmes. Uh, it's a long story. Jake wrote the. Jake wrote the short version, the, okay. the thirty forty second version, and I stretched okay. it with him into uh, a, a, the single. So that's oh. the story of it. So it's like it, the song is is uh, equal split between Jake and me. Okay. So do you get? I mean, I've had people again going back. I've had people on here who when their rock careers sort of started to kind of fade away, they got into jingles and that was extremely lucrative for them being the one singing, you know, Gillette, a best, the best a man can get. Yeah. Are you, are you making, again, not to be insensitive, but are you making money yeah. off of that jingle for as long as that thing is playing on TV? Cause that was a massive well, ad campaign. It's the longest running c- commercial on TV, 35 years still play yeah. the tune now. But but I'll tell you a funny story. I was dealing with BBD&O, which was the agency for Gillette at that time. Uh-huh. And uh, so when I delivered uh, the long version, everybody was saying, man, this is, you know, smash. 
But BBDNO said, no, we want somebody more famous like Michael Bolton or Diana Ross to sing it. And somewhere in the midst of all that, because that was where the big money was then, because if you sing a commercial, you make almost more money than the writer because you paid a Screen Actors Guild rate. So you're paid the same as a a film actor for every time the songs you perform it. And, of course, that was... uh, not what BB DNO wanted. So that nobody sang it in the end. So it was like the song had been out in the kind of early eighties, and then kind of faded away. Yeah. Just missed again. Missed it. It was such a golden opportunity, you know. Oh, it was. You know, I'm so oh proud of that recording. You know. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Oh, wow. So many interesting stories with you. I'm telling you, this is. Where I've always <laughs> wanted to talk to you because it's such an up and down sideways yeah. career it doesn't follow a path yeah man. you know yeah. oh one other thing okay so being from denver how did you how and why did the re-recording of tim tebow's fire tim tebow happen yes well uh my manager and i had driven up to espn uh they'd asked me there was talk about doing some music for uh, one of their new shows so I went up there and they said, you would, do you fancy coming live on air and singing San Elmo's? I had my guitar with me and I said, sure. So I'm, I'm live on air at ESPN. And they, just as they're counting down, they said, hey, do you fancy wearing this shirt? And I had no idea who Tim Tebow was or anything. And they threw me this shirt. I said, I put the shirt on. And uh, I'm singing along St. Elmo's Fire. And behind, well, in my eye line is all the Tim Tebow stuff, all those amazing, Uh you know, oh, my God, God, yeah. And I'm looking. So as I'm singing, just for fun, I sing Tim Tebow's Fire. And at the end of it, I start changing the whole lyrics, and I'm singing about ESPN and everything.
And then it, everything just caught fire. And uh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. we said, well, I had no idea who he was. And I was amazed by it. I was, when I started looking into what an incredible story Tim's was and, oh, yeah. you know, oh, that, yeah. that rookie thing. And she said, yeah. well, all right, well, why don't we record it? Take no money from it. Just give all the money to the Tim Tebow Foundation. So we did Incredible. it. But, of course, no, no power behind it. Yeah. No money for the foundation. Yeah. So I never did anything, Again. but it got yeah. millions of views <laughs> on YouTube. No kidding. I was, just, I was just watching it again yeah. this morning. Whatever video I was yeah. watching, it just crossed a million. But it wasn't mercenary. Then, I didn't do it to kind of cash in. I did it because sure. you know, I'd, I'd said if it made any dough, it just goes to the foundation. But it never made any yeah. dough. It just got a lot of attention. <laughs> That's incredible. That's incredible. So these days, I mean, one of the reasons that I've, had to wait two years to talk to you is because every time I reach out to Richard, your publicist, he tells me how busy you are. What are you working on now? I know now periodically you'll play the rewind festivals or the eighties festivals and stuff yes. like that, which I'm so, I wish you would get over here to the States and do that. But, um, so what are you working on now? What's the current John Park? Um, uh, in, I'm in the middle of a new record, uh, and the record is very like John Par one. It's much more guitar, uh, yeah. Uh, straight in your face um, a friend of mine Mark Singer real well known drummer who's been around for ages uh, from uh, Texas he, he came over and we made the record and I never knew that this the way that uh, Keith Richards made his record where he was just in the room with the drummer so they mm. they laid the record that way and um, his friend was Kenny Jones you know from the Faces Rod Stewart uh huh uh, so yep. Kenny said, can I come up and play? So Kenny came up, played right. drums, and we did it the same way. And he told me, he said, this is the way we did, um, I know it's only rock and roll, but I like it, the Stones. <laughs> Just him, him and, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, the Stones drummer, it was Kenny Jones and Mick Jagger. No Just in a room, no Mick singing and, and Kenny on the drums. That was yeah. freaky for me, because obviously I'm not starstruck, but being in a room with Kenny and all his history and, We've become yeah. great pals because I do a lot of things for his charity. And so I'm, I, I'm half, to cut a long story short, John, I'm halfway through this record uh, with, right. uh, I think, some very, very strong instant uh, rock records that are very kind of guitar riff based, uh, strong Excellent. vocals and uh, commercial. Good, good. No one makes rock records quite like you. So I'm excited to hear well, this. Thank you, man. I love John Park. Okay. Well, look, you've been very gracious for, with your time. I want to ask you two final questions that I ask most people. Number one, okay. and I think, I mean, you may have a lot of answers to this, but I'm always curious what people's biggest regret is. You know, they did, they made a decision somewhere along the line that affected the rest of their career, and, um, and they've always regretted that. And then I want to just know what the tastiest, coolest memory you have is, the thing that you can't believe this happened to me, you know, whatever that might be. I'm curious what those two things are. It's that's a very very tough one. I mean, it, like you really? never, you know, okay. I have been blessed by I have been blessed by uh, a very strange career, but with some yeah. incredible moments, things that you carry with you. Sometimes people say stuff to you, and it just. I remember. I, I can let me do it in a few anecdotes. Things that okay. kept me going when when Please. I thought. Um. um Remember being in, uh, and I, I say this not to ingratiate myself. This is true, sure. and people can okay. choose to believe it or not. Remember being in uh, on Bourbon Street late one night, sometime in the 90s or late 80s, whatever. Things weren't going great, 
but my manager being with the who knew everybody. And he's talking to this guy, and I thought he looked familiar. And I didn't know it was Jimmy Page. Oh. And he said, can I swear or are you going to bleep me? Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. He goes, so Jimmy says to me, I don't buy fucking albums, but I've got your fucking album. <laughs> he said, I'm making a record. He said, I'm making a record with George Harrison. And we're using your record, which is John Parr 1, as the direction. Oh, oh man. <laughs> now, that's wow. a story between just... And people can choose to believe that. There's the one I told you with McCartney and, and Foster. Uh-huh. That's amazing. Um, oh, man. The other, I mean, the other one, I mean, weird, you know. I got to work with Harry Nielsen. I mean, you did? I don't know how much you know about Harry. Harry was iconic, you know. Oh, iconic yeah. guy. I got to spend, towards the end of Harry's life, when I worked on a, a rock opera called Paris, I worked, with, uh, I worked with Harry. Harry played Ulysses. And we were in the Sydney Opera House. And uh, Harry was uh, not in the best of shape. Now, Harry Nielsen could sing in front of anybody with a live orchestra. But at this point, Harry wouldn't sing in front of anyone. He'd do his takes privately. And uh, But we anyway, I had this really difficult session to do. And I was live with a girl singer and just a piano player. And I recorded it. And I was really worried. And I came out of the room. And Harry just looked at me. He went, I was with you, John. And just that kind of thing just chokes me up. They're the kind of moments that when things aren't going great and people that are in the stratosphere say things like that to you, you know, it it just makes you go the extra step. Yeah, that's exactly why. And I I suppose the last one, last one would be Rick Hansen. This was in uh, in the days of telegrams. And this is when you used to get a yeah. written message through the post. Wow. And Rick Hansen uh, was wheeling 50 miles a day in the wheelchair across deserts and up mountains uh-huh. and whatever all around the world. And he sent me a... He would never wheel with the Walkman on. He always just wheeled without the Walkman oh, on. Interesting. You know, Sony Walkman headphones. And, he, and yeah. he sent me an email and he said, you know, he said, whenever I don't feel like I can wheel another mile, I pull over and I put, I put Man in Motion on the Walkman, and I go and wheel another 20 miles. Oh. So that's the important wow. stuff, you know. Yeah, it's not about him really sharing the really stage is. with who, which are magical, but yeah. they're little quiet oh, moments that just build your life. That's what it's all about. That is it. That's why I asked yeah, that question, to hear those stories. That's so great. Um, before I forget, where am I calling you? Where are you calling from? Because we always like to say Yorkshire. Where people live. I live in Yorkshire. Yorkshire. I'm, I'm okay. ringing you 20 miles from where I was born. I was born oh, in Sherwood wow. Forest and never moved away, really. Oh, fascinating. Okay. Well, John, this was great. I love you very much, and I'm so grateful that you gave me some time to talk. You're such a wonderful man, and your music means a lot. And so I just wanted to honor you by hearing your story, and I'm so grateful that I did. Thank you so much for talking to me. God bless you, John, and thank you for, thank you for your time. And, and uh, you know, for your listeners out there, you know, man, keep at it. You know, whatever, you, yeah. whatever you're shooting for, You've got the power in your hands. Don't let him stop you getting it, you know? There you have it, John Parr. I love that guy, and I love that conversation, and I love that music. It's just so good. It's from its time, but it, it's fun, and it, and it still kicks, right? So I'm gonna because I love it so much, I'm going to close it out here with a couple of John Parr songs. The first one is Don't Leave Your Mark On Me. This song actually appeared on his first two albums 
Jump Har and Running the Endless Mile. This is the version from the second album, Running the Endless Mile. And then after this, we're going to hear another song called The River Runs Deep, which is on one of his very obscure, his fourth album, Under Par, came out in the 90s, only in like certain parts of Europe. As I mentioned, his his musical career, to me, got he got screwed and it was mismanaged. And because of that, songs like A River Runs Deep barely got heard to most people. So I want to give you guys a double dose of John Parr at his best, if you ask me. Anyway, I really love this conversation. Uh, so guys, uh, I'll give you a little bit of a heads up. This coming weekend, I will be going to the Nashville Rock and Pod Expo. Um, there are going to be a number of musical music podcasters there. I'm not really planning on doing any. They're going to be a lot of them are going to be broadcasting live and sending out all these podcasts with little mini episodes and mini interviews and stuff like that. I'm not really planning on doing that, but I am. I, I am uh, hosting a songwriting and collaboration panel at the at the expo that will feature previous guests Walter Egan and Robert White Johnson, and then also Anthony Corden from Tora Tora, and get this, Gunnar Nelson from Nelson. Remember the Nelson brothers? So those four guys are going to be on this panel that I've arranged, and I'm hosting it. And I'm pretty sure that's going to be uh, recorded, and I will probably put that out if it's easy to do. So you may get a bonus episode here in a few days. If any of you that are listening are planning on coming to Nashville, I can't wait to see you. If you're not and you want all the details, let me know, and I'll let you know how it goes afterwards. But anyway, I hope you guys will enjoy this panel. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, next week's guest, teaser, love it. Next week's guest is one of the most successful rock song writers. His solo career is okay, and he fronted a band in the 70s that had a one or two hits, but people have covered his songs and seen huge success. So he's a very successful writer with a sort of mid-level successful solo career. Kind of, kind of unique, but he's done songs you guys will love. So I'm excited for you guys to hear this. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man, Makevich, for putting everything together. Thank you, buddy, for being the great producer that you are. And um, you guys know the business by now. You can find us on Facebook. You can like the page. You can find us on Twitter, at The Hustle Pod. You can send me an email if you want at thehustlepod at gmail.com. I tell everybody you're welcome to send me recommendations for people you would like to have on the show. I've mentioned I am a little bogged down at the moment with a number of already recorded and on the docket interviews so anyone you send me right now probably won't come out until near the end of the year but you're welcome to send them over if you want anyway uh we will be back next tuesday with the mystery guest and look out for a possible bonus episode in the meantime thanks everybody we'll see you all later
Take the fire, you're in the open. 